Today, we're considering how do you live when you're not at home. And we actually just sung about this in our song, Christ Our Hope in Life and Death. On page 8, the chorus, O sing hallelujah, our hope springs eternal. O sing hallelujah, now and ever we confess Christ our hope in life and death. And we are focusing on what does it look like to nourish hope particularly? What does it look like to nourish hope in a time where there's reasons for hope not to be nourished? What does it look like to nourish hope when we are not yet home? We're looking at Jeremiah 29 this morning. This is a passage I've preached on a few times, and I will say this time I saw something I'd never seen before, and I think I saw something I was seeing too much before. So I've, you know, changed, and I'll get to that in a second. Several years ago, we did a family vacation to Noah's Ark Water Park in Wisconsin. Anybody been to Noah's Ark Water Park? Yeah, got one, got two. Okay, it's a it's just a huge water park. I don't know why we went there, but we ended up there with my family and grandma and grandpa. And we uh, our youngest Joshua was very small at the time, and so he spent most of the time with grandma and grandpa. And then we Carmen and I took the other four kids on the rides, and I think it was like a 42 inch you know height requirement for all the rides. And our youngest at the time, or our, our fourth, Sarah, uh, very slightly built uh, uh, at, at that age. And I'm sure she was like on her tippy toes walking by the, the line so the people would let her through. She was just barely big enough to ride the rides. I think it was the first ride we did was this massive water slide in which is a huge water slide, like six or seven stories tall. Um, I think it was that tall. I'm, now I'm a preacher, so I might be exaggerating, but I'm pretty sure. And you go down this huge inner tube where four, three or four people sit on. And, uh, and so we all walked up there. And, and you've seen these huge amusement park rides. So you go up one story, two story, three, and just back and forth on these stairs. And there's like, hundreds of people in front of you and hundreds of people behind you. And I started walking up these stairs wondering, and I, I get the vantage point, and I see occasionally you'd see a kid or an adult that got launched from their inner tube and spit out the bottom of this, of, of this slide at a breathtaking speed. And I'm thinking, am I a good dad? Because like, uh, we want to foster adventure in our kids. We always have. We've never been a real safety-ish parents. But like, okay, there's a point of fostering adventure and straight up danger and destruction. And uh, I, you know, we were getting nervous, especially for the youngest one with us, Sarah, because she was so small and so slight. And we get up there and we see this huge inner tube that we have to sit in. It has these seats. And Sarah sat in the seat, and it was way oversized for her. And she, there was these handles you hold on to, but she couldn't reach them. And so, uh, well, you can't go backwards, right? You can't go down five stories and hundreds of people. So what happened is I, Carmen and I got on either side of her, and we turned sideways and threw our leg over her, and I grabbed my handle and put my hand on her shoulder, and Carmen did the same thing. So we're, we're all cockeyed in the big inner tube, and the, the kid running the ride was this German foreign exchange student, and he's like 120 pounds, like he was this skinny, waifish kid. And he starts yelling at us with this German accent, you can't do that, right? This is not allowed. And uh, I gave him the dad look that said, it's going to be fine. Uh, you know, and he wisely relented. And uh, when he, um, he said, okay, Okay, I could feel Sarah relax, right? Why? Because she knew, I don't know what's coming, but at the end, I'm going to be okay. 
I don't know. There's going to be a lot of wild twists and turns here. I did see people getting pitched out. She saw it too. Uh, but I know I'm going to be held on to by mom and dad, so it's going to come out okay. She knew she was going into the unknown. I mean, it's just this darkened tunnel, and you just hear screams, right? And there's all these twists and turns and drops. There's one time you go around, 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 and then drop down 10 feet, and there's these blasts of water jets coming out at you, and that's what, that's what the screams were. Uh, she knew that even though she was going into the unknown, and the ride might be filled with all kinds of bumps and twists and turns. At the end, she was going to be actually okay. Exile, for the Old Testament people of God, is God sending them into the unknown. And this morning, we're seeing from Jeremiah 29 that that's also the context in the unknown where he gives a promise for security and, and gives a way of being that nourishes and nurtures hope and accomplishes his purposes all at the same time. So here's the background. If you remember for the last few weeks, we've been moving through the Old Testament as sort of the aerial view for several months after taking a break in the summer, you know, with the Psalms, we're back into it. God brings the people of Israel out of slavery in Egypt, and he's about to send them in to the promised land, the land of Canaan. And he tells them, I'm driving out the Canaanites, not because you are special, Israel, but because these Canaanites are kind of miserable people. Right? They, are, they do detestable things. And if you remember, we saw a couple weeks ago, the picture was God said the land is going to vomit them out. Like a, like a body gets rid of something that's making it sick by vomiting out. You eat a piece of bad fish, it goes down, it comes out. I told you my old mentor drank like a cup of olive oil, drank it down, came right out. Right? Your body's not meant to do that. Uh, but the detestable practices of the Canaanites, namely their idol worship, their, uh, their sexual practices are all twisted, and they even sacrifice their children to the god Molech. God said, this is detestable. It makes the land sick. It makes the, it, it's unclean practices. It makes the land vomit them out. So I'm, the land's going to vomit them out, and I'm giving you the land. But Israel, if you adopt the same customs as the Canaanites, the land will vomit you out as well. And so all, a lot of Old Testament history is saying, will they adopt the practices? Yes, they will. <laughs> and so in 722, the Assyrian Empire carries off the northern kingdom. The land vomits them out. Uh, and then in a series of, you know, from about 605 B.C. to 586 B.C., there's deportations of, of the southern kingdom by the Babylonian Empire because they, too, had adopted the practices of idol worship, of the twisted sexual practices, even dedicating and sometimes sacrificing their children to the god Molech. And all these other kind of things the, the Lord calls detestable practices. And into exile they go. Exile is a phrase that just means being barred from one's native country. They're sent away from Israel. And even when they came back years later, so and we'll get to this, sometimes some of the Jews come back after several years, not all of them, they weep because they realize things still aren't right. We're actually still not home yet. Last week, Taylor, so ably from the scripture, showed us that the theme of exile isn't just for them. Exile is a, is a, is a reality for the people of God now as well. That we too are not home yet. And it's not that we're waiting to go some, some other geography but uh, it is we are waiting for a, a certain time in history. 
when what we long for will be, those longings will be made complete. At the end of the, the scripture in Revelation 21, we have this picture where the new city, heavenly Jerusalem, from which we get our name, New City Church, comes down to earth and renews all things back to their restored glory and beyond. So we can say, like, we're kind of not home. There's an old, like, southern gospel hymn that says, this world is not my home, I'm just a passing through. Now, if you heard that, don't sing that. It's bad theology. This, kind of, this world kind of is our home, it's just not yet. Right? We're out of phase. We're out, there's a time phase that we're unsynced with. Like, there, there will be a time where we can say, this is my home. But right now we say, I'm, we're not home yet because things aren't complete yet. So as Taylor said last week, in Christ our exile has been completed. So we're, we're, we're released from exile. We're rela- released from, we are home in Jesus. In some ways because of our spiritual union with him, we're already raised with him. When Jesus says it is finished, our sins were, were paid for. That completed the exile. But in another way, we still live in exile because that future time hasn't come yet. So we live in a sort of a time in between the times. And the Bible calls you, New Testament Christians, exiles. In 1 Peter 1, the whole book is addressed to exiles in the dispersion. And he says, that's where I'm going to give grace and peace magnified to you. And then I put this, and we're going to get to Jeremiah 29, I promise. Uh, uh, inside your insert here at the very bottom. This is in the New Testament to people following Jesus. We hear these words and these are placed upon us. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So as exiles, you New Testament people, you are to live lives of love and justice and faithfulness to God in a public way, not a showy way, but so that people can see it. You have to be in enough proximity to people so they see, oh, your character is very good, even though you worship a God I don't believe in. There's not actual reason for me to to condemn your character because I see your life. In Jeremiah 29, they've been taken into exile, and the question is, now how do we live? What do we do? We're not at home anymore. Uh, and this gives shape, I think, to how we are called to live as well. The immediate context is this. You may know this, but in Jeremiah 28, a false prophet, Hananiah, has risen up. And he's kind of like the ancient Near East version of a health and wealth preacher that tells you what you want to hear. He's like, hey, uh, within two years, God will bring you back, everybody. So just wor- don't worry about it. Just hang on. Once you huddle together, probably on the north side of Babylon, by the river, you just hang out there, and within two years, God will bring you back. That's what you want to hear? I'm going to tell you this. Jeremiah says that's a prophet saying, peace, peace, where there is no peace. He's like, no problem. God's going to bring you home. Jeremiah 29 is God's response to the false prophet through Jeremiah, basically saying, y'all, it's going to be 70 years, so settle in. 70 years. 7-0. Not right around the corner. Settle in. It's going to be seven decades. Because you don't have to go home to live with hope. Exile 
is actually the place where hope grows. It's messy, but it's real. It's not exile, not being home yet, is not the place where we're called to sort of despair and isolation on the one hand, or on the other hand, assimilation and losing your Christian identity. But we're called to, to nourish hope. And, and I really, depending on our makeup, right, we may, one, some of us may be tempted to despair and isolation in our current climate. Um, the older I get, the more cynical I get, I'm over here. Um, I, sometimes, we've had this conversation at my table, my kids say, uh, Dad, you're kind of cynical. I said, I'm realistic. And they say, that's what cynics say. So um, if you're despair and isolation over here, on this side, maybe if you're more sort of culturally engaged, your, your inclination is going to be toward assimilation and losing your Christian identity. Neither one of those is what God calls us to and empowers us for. It's actually right here in the context we find ourselves is where hope could be nurtured. It's true for us. It was true for the ancient Israelites. Uh, so if I could... If you could indulge me and stand for the reading of God's word, I'm going to read from Jeremiah 29, 1 through 14. And don't fear, the the reading has come a little bit late in the sermon, okay, so we're not just starting. Hear the word of God. These are the words of the letter which Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the elders of the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. The letter said... Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters, multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you, and do not listen to the dreams which they dream, for it is a lie which they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, says the Lord. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, says the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and from all the places where I have driven you, says the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. This is the word of the Lord. Be seated. I want to look briefly at the way this passage lays out the nurturing of hope. It is nurtured and nourished by trusting in the promises of the covenant Lord. Hope is nourished in a, in a contrast society that is present in its world, yet distinct from it. And it is nurtured in and for the world and the place where God has sent us. First of all, hope is nourished in trusting in the promises of a covenant Lord. So we're going to start toward the end there. Verse 11, I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Nearly 28 years ago, when we were married, we received a wedding plaque with this verse on it. I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to give you a future and a hope. And I was a 
kind of a smart aleck seminary student, I remember thinking, I wonder if we have to wait 70 years for that. Because that's the original context of that promise. Some of you have it on a coffee mug or a fridge. I know I have the plan. The plans I have for you, says the Lord. And we as Americans take that to mean like things will go well and you'll never have any problems. In the original context, man, I'll bring you back in 70 years. <laughs> uh, you may see evidences of my care for you along that time. But the fulfillment of the promise is seven decades away. That means this. Most of the people probably all of the people who heard this original prophecy didn't see it come to full completion, including Jeremiah himself. Seventy years, adults hearing this would have probably passed on, especially given the life expectancy, those folks. Uh, Jeremiah wouldn't have seen it come to pass. It doesn't mean it's less true. It doesn't mean it's less true. It doesn't mean it's less effective for God's people. Uh, and this is what I just, I didn't see this. I preached this a couple times here and thought about this passage several times. I did not see this, did not think about this, that it just wasn't for them. But trusting in the promises of God would have set their face in a particular direction. It would have aligned their lives with God's purposes in the world in his unfolding story in the earth so that their children and grandchildren would be prepared to see it come to fruition. So the you in verse 12, right? I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. And then verse 12, then you will call upon me and come and pray to me. It wouldn't have been any of those who heard that. It would have been their kids and grandkids. So your kids and grandkids will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. That's them, the, the grandkids. You will seek me and find me. When you seek me with all your heart, I will be found by you, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and from all the places where I have driven you, says the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place which I sent you into exile. How will those kids in that moment be faithful to the Lord? How will they know to, to seek him with all their heart? the faithfulness of the parents and grandparents in the previous generation. Those believing, leaning into the covenant promises of God, whose lives are aligned, uh, then, then the next generation, and the next generation is prepared to say, yes, this Yahweh, the one dad trusted in and grandma trusted in, this is the one we worship, and they are aligned at, they seek him with all their heart, and God returns them. So, uh, parents and adults in a church community, our faithfulness to the Lord is not just for us. Maybe not even primarily for us. We have the massive privilege of shaping the next generation simply by being consistently faithful to Jesus. In fact, that's the way God has grown his church mostly in history. And so I'm not just talking about people who have children. I'm talking about all the adults participating in the shaping and shepherding of the next generation and the generation after, spurring them on, encouraging them, being models. This is how God normally, normally has grown his church from one man on a cross, 12 disciples, to a worldwide movement that's growing faster than any other movement, now mostly in the southern hemisphere, but growing faster. I wrote an article years ago about the growth of the early church and the nature of evangelism. The fastest growing period in church history was from Pentecost to about the, the year, uh, I don't have it right in my head, 350 A.D. 
And we, we read the book of Acts and we see, oh, 5,000 people come to Christ, 10,000 people come to Christ. This must be how it's like all the way through church history. Not even close. After Pentecost, there's consistent growth. And by the year 350, we have decent data on this, there were about 33 million Christians in the world. You think, that's an amazing amount of growth. From the first century to 350 AD, you know, 12 to 33 million. Okay, hold on. Let's just think about the math. Right? That's an average growth rate of 30 to 32% net per decade. This translates to about 2.75% per year of growth of the church in the fastest uh, time of growth in the history of the church. To put this in perspective, to account for the, um, the rate of persecution unto death and the average life expectancy. Uh, did all this research. Um, so I've got to share it with somebody. Um, uh, that would mean a church of 50 would turn in one year into a church of 52 or 53. That includes children born in the church who are nurtured in the faith. Over year after year after year. Now we live in the, you know, kind of post in the age of the Great Awakening, Second Great Awakening, Billy Graham, Mass Crusades, lots of people come to Christ. Like, that must have been how it is in all of church history. Well, not really. I mean, I'm thankful for that. I personally am thankful for that. I come from a family that didn't have this Christian heritage of trusting Jesus, and God rescued me out and placed me into that. And several of you share that same story. But then the normal way that God moves his plan forward in history is raising up the next generation and loving them and pursuing them. This is uh, knowing the plans he ha I have for you, says the Lord, plans for welfare, not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. This is like seeing the end of a movie we've never seen. Like the last 10 minutes of a movie we haven't ever seen. That's, we just walk in at the end, you're like, oh, I haven't seen this movie. I should know the end. But now I know the end. And then you watch it uh, a week later from the beginning. And at the, the beginning of the movie, like, I'm not quite sure how this character plays into the finale, but I know where it's going. And over time, the plot develops and the character formation takes place. So, oh, oh, yeah, oh, I see. And you get to the end, and you're not surprised because you knew where it was going all the, the time. But in the middle, you're like, I'm confused. I'm, I'm seeing where this is going. But you're not surprised by the end of the movie. You already know what it is, and therefore you're, not, you're, not, you know, you're just not stunned by it. We know the end of the movie. Right? God's telling them here, I, I've got a plan for you, a future and a hope. So anchor yourself to that. We know, guys, you know the end of the movie. You know the end of the movie is like Romans 8, where we see words like Romans 8, 31 and 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? That's the end of the movie. We know Hebrews 13, where God says, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. We know Revelation 21, which is splashed across the back of our sanctuary here, that, that he, he says, I am making all things new. We know Revelation 22, we will see him face to face. What we do is we think about the end, we anchor our hope there, and we tie the other end of that rope to us, and we just live by hope right now. And we say, I don't know where this is going, but I know at the end it will be fine. That's part of the way hope is nourished. How do we live right now? He begins to address this too. It's a, it's a broad form. It gets filled out with Jesus. It's nourished in a, what we might call a contrast community or a, a counterculture 
a Christian counterculture. I don't mean weird. I just mean distinct from our surrounding culture. So first of all, this letter, if you notice, in verse 1, is given to the elders, the priests, the prophets, and the people. So it's not like you're forwarding a letter or they're hitting forward on an email. They're saying they, they've gathered themselves into communities, even in exile. They gathered in communities for worship and teaching. Jeremiah sends this letter, hey, give it to the spokesmen of the communities, and they'll read it to the people. And here's what it says, verse 5, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. What he's saying is uh, live your lives fully where I've sent you. Wherever you are, be all there. You're in Indianapolis, be all there. You're a new pal, be all there. You're in Carmel, be all there. Like be present where I have placed you, Right? Uh, act and ask God to bless it, right? You know, your, your crops and your homes, take the long view. Take the long view. Don't live in tents, build the homes. It's like, so you're going to be here for a while. Settle in. Make Babylon, make Indianapolis your home. But don't be at home there. Does that make sense? This is where we are, but we're always a little discomforted because we realize we're out of phase. It's not quite our home yet. Don't despise where I've sent you. Live there. But maintain your distinct identity as my people. That's the whole thing about um, giving sons and daughters and taking sons and daughters in marriage. There's a lot of the Old Testament laws about marriage rights and marriage parameters. It's not talking about just go marry the Babylonians. No, it's marry other Yahweh worshipers and you will multiply there. He's talking about multiplication, right? And he's like, be, grow there as you, my, my refugee people, be present in the community, be all there, but also be distinct at the same time. So formally, God said, I'm calling you to be priests, giving you a nation that the other nations should say, man, that way of life, how can I get in on that? Now I've taken you out of that land and put you in a foreign land, but that calling is still the same. You are to live in communities that embody worship of me and a way of life that ideally people, somebody would look at and say, well, how can I get in on that? That's different than the culture in which I live. They don't despise me, but there's a distinction I want to get in on that. Uh, that's the same call that we have. We, we read it in 1 Peter 2. We are a, a, a group of people to have a distinct identity, whether that's in Indianapolis or Chicago or some small town in Brazil or London or wherever. There's, I put a quote in your insert here from Michael Goheen in his book, A Light to the Nations, which we've worked through here a few years ago. I'd hardly recommend. Goheen says, if the church is to be a, quote, come and join us people who embody the kingdom of God in the midst of the world of necessity, their lives must exhibit a redemptive tension with and a challenge to the idolatrous cultures of the world, including Western culture. The early Christians understood themselves to be different from others in their culture and lived together as an alternative community nourished by an alternative story. An alternative community nourished by an alternative story. There's lots of stories that nourish our culture, right? It's like there's, there, everything's limited, get what you can. 
become as famous as you can. You must express yourself. You're an individual. Uh, you know, your tribe has to win. The other tribe has to win. Those are all stories. We people, we are people of God nourished by the gospel. This says Christ has done what we could not do because we could not do it and has delivered us in, in, by faith in him, delivered us into a family and into a status that cannot be changed in which God rejoices over us and brings us into a family. And so I think if the places of redemptive tension in our world, there's a lot, just, I just want to hit four real quickly. In, the, in, the store, in a community nourished by the gospel, money is a tool, not a goal. It's a gift from God to enable us to enjoy Him and His creation and to help others enjoy Him and His creation. So we want to say, if you, want to be, if you will be willing to be part of this community, if we have, you will not lack. That's what it means to be this contrast society. Meaning not, you may not drive a Porsche, but like it does mean your lights won't get cut off. You will not be hungry. Like, if, as long as we have food, you will have food. That's what it means to be a covenant community in the midst of the world. Because in some ways, what's mine is yours because God has given it to both of us. Sexuality, sex is something that we steward, not something we own for ourselves. Right? It is a gift from God. It means we don't object. We refuse to objectify other people. Power. Um, it means that we, as a people, are those who have completely abandoned hope in the power of politics to be our Savior. And is therefore now not a reason for the rise and fall of our emotional joy and sorrow. And if we rise and fall in joy and sorrow based on who's in office or who might be in office, we realize, oh, we have a false God. So as the people of God, we resist, so let me say it both ways, we resist the, uh, the identity politics and the social theories of the secular theories of, of justice from the political left. We resist that. As the people of God, we resist the nationalism from the political right. We resist that. See, that's not the source of any power. And I know you might say, yes, but the left is kind of worse. Don't you think the left is worse than the right? And somebody says, well, but the right is really kind of worse because, do you know, Donald Trump is terrible, blah, blah, blah. You know, it's like all that's playing the same game. That's just saying that power is really the important thing. What's in the kingdom of God? Power is prayer and the gospel and service to each other. If we living by that is actually a contrast to our society. Status. We confer status on each other as those honored because they're made in the image of God. That's where we start. We start. Even the person who has the most vile disagreement with you, and if you're a Christian, may totally dislike you. You know what you share? The image of God with them. So we can start with, oh, you are one made in the image of God. And in the body of Christ, we say, oh, you are treasured as one remade in the image of his son, born into the family of God, and a son or a daughter of the high king of the universe. Deep honor we can confer to each other. Uh, with, without respect to, to notoriety or accomplishment or all the other variables the world says, super important, how pretty you are, how much money you have, all this kind of stuff. Israel was to be a picture of what life centered on Yahweh, the Lord, could be. And then they got exiled. And, he, and the Lord says, your life is to be a picture of what life centered on me could be. 
And the New Testament comes, and he places that same calling right into us. He said, guess what, guys? Your life can be a picture of what life centered on me can be. Doesn't change in exile. And then what radical act of missionary zeal are they called to? What radical act of missionary zeal does God call you to to embody this? Ready? Get ready. Plant a garden, worship him, and love the next generation. There's a radical normalness to the kingdom of God. Year after year after year after year. Radical normalness. Nourished in a contrast society. Not perfect society. You all know we're not a perfect society (laughs) church. Trying to authentically say we want to be a foretaste of the coming kingdom. And you all are part of that. In spite of our frailty. Because Jesus is working in our midst. And we're nourished in and for the world in which we live. Verse 7, seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. And pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. Now, I told you before, I didn't really see the, the piece of the next generation the first time I looked at this. I think I saw this too. I saw it too much. Here's what I mean. I read this last week an article by a 20-year-old college student in California, so Gen Z, which I think is those born in the late 90s to maybe 2010. And she was writing about the suffocating pressure Gen Z feels to fix the world. All these problems, all these problems, and you have to fix it. Now, we always could say, well, don't we think we've always had that pressure? Well, kind of, but now all the problems of the world come right to your hand in a phone. Right? And you can, what you used to read about, you can now see in cinemat, cinematic reality 24-7. At this, the same day I read that, I got this, well, Joshua, my 16-year-old son, got this letter in the mail from Brescia University. I don't know where this is. But it's this, we get these all the time. You get them too if you have kids this, this age. Here's what it says. Joshua. Well, Josh. <laughs> you have what it takes to make a difference. We know you, Josh. (laughs) Of course, this is something written to thousands of kids. We know you have what it takes to make a difference. With just a little guidance, your interest can become your purpose. And a purpose-driven leader can change the world. How much pressure is that on a kid? I'm serious. Like, older people are like, yeah, we know anything going to change. But there's a ton of pre- like so I believe that this young woman is experiencing a suffocating pressure. There's a, a campus ministry that I, I have deep affection for and support. A couple years ago, its national conference was called Transform Everything. And the tagline was this, what will you transform? Here's the answer, very little. I'm just trying to keep my waistline from not transforming bigger and bigger. Right? We can barely manage ourselves, And we live in a culture that says, oh yeah, here's these intractable social problems that have happened in every culture for all time, and it's now it's on your plate, and if you don't fix them, you have failed. That's ridiculous. God, we just got to get over this. Um. Maybe I, maybe I feel that especially because I had these kids who just came through college and were told that all the time. You've got to fix it or you failed. You've got to fix it or you failed. 
Like, if you read the New Testament, the Christians are living under Nero and Domitian, like terrible emperors. The Roman Empire is terrible. You know what God says about fixing that culture? Zero. It says pray for the, pray for the emperors. And love your neighbor like Christ loved you. And you know what happens? When people do that, God may change it. Or like Babylon, who he says seek the welfare of the city, he says in Gen- or Jeremiah 50, I'm going to destroy it. So this is where I think I overinterpreted this. This word, shal- this word welfare is the Hebrew word shalom, which can mean the full glory and joy of God, right? The wholeness that comes from God. But it also could mean just like lacking war and making money. So in the Old Testament, evil people could have shalom if they had money. I think that I and a lot of other well-meaning Christians that I respect, like tend to over, like seek the welfare of the city. We're involved. We're, we're going to change the social structure of Babylon. So you tell me refugees with no power are going to change the social fabric of the, the, uh, the culture that enslaved them in 70 years. I think not. What it's saying is pray to the Lord on its behalf. Because in its welfare, you have welfare. So first of all, don't despise it. Don't, just don't hate the place where I sent you, even though they were the reason you are here. Some of your family is dead at their hands the, or their relate, relatives' hands. Um, they've upended your life. Don't despise where I've sent you. So I, pro- I think probably what it means is don't, don't act against the city because if they get invaded, guess what? You get invaded. If there's an economic downturn, guess what? It's a downturn for you. The people buying your goods are not going to buy your goods anymore. I think so. We tend to overinterpret this. Doesn't mean we shouldn't be involved with things. Uh, so I put another quote from Michael Goheen here, just to give it sort of a bal- more of a balanced view. Mike, he was a professor of mine, so I want to ask him about this. He says, we are obligated, and I really want to ask him, do you really mean obligated? But um, we are obligated then to seek the welfare of our cultural setting, Involving ourselves in various cultural and social institutions of our place as we participate in the cultural task. This means that the church's witness will move beyond the church as a communal gathering. So that's what we're doing here. As another theologian, Leslie Newbigin argues, the church must witness to the lordship of Christ, whether its members are scattered or together. The The church exists in its prime reality or its first reality from Monday to Saturday, in all its members dispersed throughout the fields and homes and offices and factories bearing the royal priesthood of Christ in every corner of this world, on the Lord's day it is withdrawn into itself to renew its being in the Lord himself. So that's what's happening today. Like we, we draw, we come together, we're nurtured, we sing, we hear the word preached, we come to the table, we're nurtured and nourished and reminded, oh, we're, we exist with a different story. My story isn't I'm just trying to get everything I can and the person wins who dies with the most toys wins. That's not the story we're nurtured by. Now, we live in a world that's nourished by that story, but that's not our story. It's the story of the gospel. And then we go out into our lives and love our neighbor. Some of you do want to be involved in all the social structures of the city. Go do it. That's awesome. And use the energy that Jesus gives you to go do that. Some of you and all of you will be called to love your neighbors no matter what their situation in life or lifestyle or whatever it is. That's right, we do that. Will that change everything? Will that transform everything? I don't know. I know the end of the story. He says, I have a future and a hope for you. And so wherever that's going, 
uh, wherever the, the story tomorrow is going, or next week or next month, we know that the end is secure. And we know that the end is secure because Jesus has already ran out to the end and by his life, death, and resurrection secured it. And as it were, from the future, preaches back to us. And so we can, one way to think about the kingdom of God is, is the future reality reaching back into the present. We need to be nourished on that story over and over. That's part of the reason we come to the communion table every single week. To be nourished on that gospel story that Jesus has run out to the end and he secured us. And we may not know the next few steps. There might be a dark place. It might be blind turns and all that kind of stuff. But we know he's with us and he has us. And that's how we are strengthened. Part of the reason we're strengthened and way we're strengthened is to come to the table. Now, we've moved the confession of faith to the place right before communion. So we're going to, in a moment, read this statement of faith together. And I would say, if you can say this in earnest, the table is open to you. If you can make this statement of faith in earnest, the table is open to you.